0: Hi there, everyone. I'm Naomi Mimela, and you're listening to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that tells the stories of women with interesting, unusual, and inspiring careers. Thanks so much for joining us again. It means a lot to me to have you listening, and I'm always really touched to hear from people, so thanks for that. If you're in need of some motivation today, then do have a listen back to some of the other fascinating interviews in this series for some inspiration. There's some cracking women on there. By the time I was in my early 20s, Carrie Bradshaw and the women in sex in the city seem to have revolutionized the way sex was discussed amongst groups of girlfriends. My peer group certainly had a lot of very open discussions, which I won't share on this podcast right now. But suffice to say there was a time when I had a pretty in-depth knowledge about the sex lives of my closest friends. I was reflecting on this since speaking to today's guest, however, and realized that those conversations are rare now that we are mostly married or in relationships. A lot of my friends have small kids and busy jobs, and the heady days of dating, sex, and excitement seem to have disappeared somewhat. That doesn't mean that we're not happy. I, for one, am really happily married and feel incredibly lucky to have a wonderful man in my life. It's just that our conversations have changed. A few friends have mentioned a lack of sex to post-children, but what happens when intimacy and sex in a relationship starts to disappear altogether? Whatever your orientation or preference is, is it necessary to be having sex or being intimate in a couple to be happy? And how do you come back from a place where passion seems to have disappeared altogether? My guest today answers these questions and a whole lot more in her clinical practice as a certified sex therapist in Seattle, Washington. She is Jessa Zimmerman, and in addition to seeing couples for treatment, she has also written a book, Sex Without Stress, and produces her own podcast, Better Sex. If we're talking unusual careers, this one certainly ticks that box, but I was so interested to hear from Jessa about what her job entails and her thoughts on sex in the 21st century. It goes without saying that this episode contains a fair amount of sexual content and some pretty frank discussions on a variety of aspects of sex. I started by asking Jessa whether she thought sex was important in a relationship, and if so, why? What is it about physical intimacy and the connection between a couple that makes it worth fighting for? Yeah, I I really do think it's
1: important. I mean, I I guess I should say if there are people out there that don't want to have sex, like both people don't want it, that's fine. Uh, I'm not out to persuade people that don't care. But I think a lot of people do want to have that physical and emotional connection with their partner. And I feel like our sexuality is part of our birthright. You know, it's such a profound, essential part of who we are. And to connect with a partner in that way is, is significant and meaningful and, and unique. It's not like anything else we do with people.
0: And with the people that end up coming to you, um, do you have a kind of typical demographic or d- is it a huge variety of people? And how do those <laughs> people end up coming to you? Like it is, how, what's the decision making with couples that you often find? Well, I, I don't know
1: exactly since I see them once they've made the decision. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do ask them what, you know, why now? Because mostly people have been struggling for a while. And then they finally come in, you know? So yes, it's a huge variety. I mean, I've had couples as I work mostly with couples. So I've had people as young as their early twenties. Um, and as old as 80 and everything. Yeah, I know. Isn't that, I think that's great
0: news. 80 years old,
1: wanting your sex life to be great, you know? Um, and really everything in between. So people can struggle with sex across the whole lifespan. And even the nature of their struggles is incredibly diverse. I mean, I, I, I had a, I don't know if it was quite a fear, but, you know, when I decided to be a sex therapist, it's like, oh, I'm narrowing down so much, you know, will that limit my, my work, but it turns out to be incredibly varied, you know, what I'm working with. Mm-hmm. And, and some people come in the first sign of trouble, but that's the exception. You know, most people have been struggling for quite a while, as as long as decades before mm-hmm. Something makes it urgent enough to go, you know, talk to some stranger about this because, I, you know, I know that's not an easy thing to do.
0: It's a big decision for people to make as a couple to seek therapy as it requires the mutual recognition that something in your relationship isn't going quite right, which is a conversation that a couple may not have had if they've been ignoring a problem or trying to get past it without tackling it head on. I said in the introduction that I've had some pretty frank discussions with my closest girlfriends, you know who you are if you're listening, about sex, sex toys, sex parties, use of porn, and sometimes a lack of sex. But I asked Jessa whether she felt that women found it easier to talk to their girlfriends about sex than to talk to their partner, whatever their orientation, about difficulties in their sex life, without apportioning blame or shame.
1: Right, right. It's, it's difficult. And I think, I think you're right that maybe more women talk about sex, but I think, I think that might be more often when it's going okay. Like I, (laughs) the thing I hear from couples, you know, they'll think, Oh, our friends, everybody that knows us thinks we're perfect. They would never realize that we haven't had sex in months, Mm. you know? So some, I think often when people are struggling with sex, they they're afraid something's broken you know, either with them or with their relationship. And so that's a hard thing to admit and share with people.
0: Yeah. And that's, and, and actually like maybe sharing with a stranger is, is easier than sharing it with each other almost, you know, like that they, they kind of come into you and you offer a degree of anonymity and you're a professional and, you know, they can tell you things that they wouldn't necessarily even be able to tell each other outside of that room, I guess.
1: Right. Right. And, you know, some people haven't talked about it. Other people have fought about it or gotten in conversations that go nowhere and they just don't know how to progress. It's, you know, it's not like nobody's talking about sex with their partner, but you know, if they're coming into therapy, they haven't been able to resolve it on their own, of course. And one of the, I think really the first thing I do, the first thing I offer is a space. Well, first of all, there's nothing I haven't heard before and a sense that it's normal to struggle. You're not broken. Right. So I think there's a a fair amount of relief that can happen pretty quickly. Like, You know, we're not the only people struggling. Of course, we're having these issues. It's, you know, things come up and throw a wrench in the works and and everybody has a hard time. And I think once once they can accept that, like, oh, it's totally normal to struggle. This is, you know, nothing new. And there's a way through it. Then we can have much more productive conversations.
0: Have you, you've been a sex therapist for quite a long time now. Have you noticed a big change in people's attitudes over the periods of time that you've been doing your job? You know, do you think people are becoming more open to talking about sex because certainly in britain you know we're really buttoned up and people they don't talk about sex and they don't talk about <laughs> money right, right. it's kind of the last um the last t- taboo you know those two things really is still seen as definitely over here i'm just interested in whether it's the same in the states as well or have you noticed a change in people's attitudes as you've been doing well, the job i mean i've been doing it just shy of a decade
1: so i I guess in that time period, I I don't see major changes, at least in my practice. You know, I know that clients generally still aren't talking about sex to anybody else and frequently still aren't talking to each other. <laughs> you know, that's hmm. part of what brings them in. Um, but what we're talking in, about in the therapy room, I don't think has really changed. I do think that the Me Too movement has opened up dialogue about um, harassment and assault. So I think people are talking more about those experiences
0: that they've had. Can you just expand on that a little bit?
1: Well, I I think a lot of people. Um, I mean, this is just anecdotal, right? It's not a scientific study, but I think people often have felt shame about experiences that they've had. They've been confused sometimes about whether this was assault or abuse or not. You know, because sometimes it's not as black and white as being. You know, for instance. Um, this may be triggering for people, but, you know, like raped by a stranger as you're walking through the park or, so you know, that's clearly a violation. But sometimes what happens in a lot of other situations is a little bit more murky and confusing. And so I think there's new awareness to what consent is and what it should be and what experiences we've had that didn't involve, you know, true consent. So I think people are talking more about that.
0: I was interested in what Jessa said there about the fact that nothing shocks her anymore. I asked her whether she'd ever been absolutely floored by what a client told her, be that with its unusual nature, the downright weirdness of a situation, or anything else. I was expecting her to say that she'd heard tales of some incredibly out-there kinks or fetishes. What she actually said took me by surprise a little.
1: Well, not really. I mean, part of the training to be a certified sex therapist, which it's important <laughs> to mm-hmm. find a certified sex therapist, <laughs> and I believe that I think that ASECT certifies people in Britain. Um, part of the training is what's called a sexuality attitudes reassessment, and it's at least ten hours where we're exposed to all kinds of sexual material. You know, whether it's pornography or sexual films and conversations, and and so you're sort of um, shown. And discussing a broad range, I mean, incredibly broad range of sexual behavior and orientation and preferences and presentations and things. So really, it would be kind of hard to be surprised once you get to private practice. Um, The stuff that I think still can take my breath away are the stories of what people are raised in sometimes with the abuse or some of the stuff that's happened to them. I mean, there's no amount of hearing that stuff that makes that easier the next time you hear it.
0: With hindsight, it seems obvious that some people's issues around sex that drive them to seek therapy may link back to a history of trauma, abuse, or past emotions. But in advance of this interview, I admit that in my ignorance, this side of Jessa's job never even crossed my mind. I put it to Jessa that supporting victims and aiding their healing might take its toll on some therapists over a period of time, and asked how she coped with this difficult aspect of her work. People deal with that in
1: different ways, and you know, I feel like I've got a relatively good I don't even know what to call it. power uh, Force field or something where I don't absorb um, too much. I mean, I can be totally there and present in the room with the clients, but it's not like I normally take it home with me. But every once in a while, there's a story that just haunts me for a long time.
0: And just to backtrack on your career, um mm-hmm. this is a this is a podcast about careers, I guess. Um and I'm sure this is a question that you get a lot, but how did you end up becoming a sex therapist? You know, it's not your average it's not your average day job. Um how yeah, did no. you get how did you get into that in the first place?
1: Well, I um I'd had other careers or or maybe I'd just say jobs before I had children. And then when I had my first daughter, I well, I did a little bit of freelance. Work, but then I was a stay-at-home mom, and I was homeschooling my kids for quite a long time. Uh, but then I got a divorce, so that's sort of a long story. But in the course of of getting divorced and having to, you know, figure out what am I going to do now to support my kids, um, I decided to go back to school and get my master's to be a therapist. It felt like a huge, uh, scary thing to achieve, but it, it felt important too. And then I I knew I wanted to focus on work with couples the whole time. My, you know, my parents had been happily married for 52 years until my mom died and all four of us kids have gotten divorced. So I, I, yeah, so I think I had this fascination with what actually makes relationships work because I watched one, but that wasn't enough, you know? Um, So I knew I wanted to focus on couples work. You know, I inherently felt like relationships are just critically important all along. And then early in that training, a sex therapist was giving one of the, teaching one of the courses and she referred to, she thought, considers most of her work to be grief and loss work. And that statement just hit me. You know, people, like I know people are suffering if their sex life is not working. You know, that's a serious loss. And I, it was one of those one of those moments, you know, where lightning hits you out of the sky. It's like, all right, I'm going to be a sex therapist. And of course, I had to finish my master's and my licensing and do all the training to get certified. It was a long process, but but I knew it in that moment. That's what I wanted to do.
0: I love that Jessa had such a lightning rod moment where she knew what her next career move was going to be. That clarity is such a rare thing and as someone who pushes at open doors to explore opportunities rather than always having a clear plan, that is amazing to me. The next topic we unpacked was pornography and I asked Jessa what her take as a therapist was on the impact of porn on relationships in general. Obviously, there are examples of both good and bad, but particularly with regard to young people whose education about sex often now comes through porn that is so freely available on the internet. Oh, boy. There's so much to say about this topic, <laughs>
1: and I won't, I won't cover it all. <laughs> Let me start okay. with young people. Por- okay. Pornography is not sex. Pornography is fantasy, right? And, and um, entertainment. And I, in one of my posts, I, I refer to it as, a, it as a caricature of sex. Where you know porn has different niches that appeal to like one slice of eroticism for people, and so that aspect is exaggerated in relation to everything else. That's why I call it a caricature. So pornography is not a good place to learn about sex. So the fact that young people have access before, um, before the or maybe instead of any adequate sex education. Well, yeah, does that even exist, right? Sex ed is about fear, <laughs> you know, how not to get disease and how not to get pregnant. So <laughs> we, don't, we don't do a good job of having any resources for young people to understand relationship and intimacy and eroticism and pleasure and all the positive parts of sex. Um, and, and then the images are so powerful in porn. That's part of the draw of it for people, right? It's very, very highly stimulating for the brain. So I don't know that young people are ready for that. Or have or have the context to put what they're viewing you know to understand what they're viewing and what context it falls in so I think I don't think it's a great thing for young people now for adults it, you know I think it's how you view it or how you use it like it's incredibly stimulating so it can be great uh, stimulus for masturbation or share it with a partner to or to explore what you find erotic and learn about that um And hopefully bring that into a relationship if you're in one. And just like so many things, it can be used as um, in sort of compulsive ways, right? Where you don't keep it in bounds or you're using it as as, uh, stress relief, like too much or anxiety reducing or, you know, in some way that is kind of overtaking the rest of your life. So I don't, I guess I don't believe that the content of pornography is inherently harmful, but like anything can be misused. And that's that's not even discussing about whether the production of pornography, you know, the human rights and the how exploitative is it or is it empowering? You know, some women in sex work feel very empowered. Others are being totally exploited. You know, that um, that's, a, that's a different discussion. That's than I a whole other
0: subject. That's a whole it? other <laughs>
1: subject where I'm not the person to talk to about that. But I'm aware of those concerns and there's validity to those. But if yeah. we're just talking about the content of it, it's not inherently bad in my view.
0: Jessa makes the point there that sex ed for young people is inadequate and not really fit for purpose in so many ways. Having sex as a young person, male or female, whatever your orientation, is scary. And you're unlikely to be good at it when you start. Nobody's good at anything when they start out. And the challenge of helping young women feel confident and well-educated about their bodies and about sex is an ongoing one. Maybe it's just that I live in a female empowerment feminist bubble definitely possible but it seems to me that the discussion about the existence of the clitoris what it is and where to find it plus women talking about the female orgasm and how to achieve it is increasing i asked jessa if she thought that women in this day and age were demanding more from their sex lives
1: i hope so but i don't know i shared it there was a ted talk by i think her name is peggy orenstein she's done research or or, I, i can't remember what her role is but she talks about how young women just don't aren't thinking like that and you know they're given oral sex or they're, they're still thinking all about the guy they're with. I mean, talking about a heterosexual uh, arrangement here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's changing. I hope it is. It's, it's, it's sad to me that we're not on equal footing and that everybody's not approaching this. Like how do, how do we make this a good encounter for any two people that are sharing it? Yeah. And women, you know, I th- I think in general don't come in as well informed about their own pleasure. You know, they may not. You know, men men can see their genitals. <laughs> you know, they they can reach them. It's it's a little bit more straightforward about what to do uh, to get to an orgasm. You know, to have that experience. And so for women, it there's certainly there's not as much education. I think about female anatomy. I don't know that the clitoris is ever match, mentioned in sex ed. Uh, there's so many misconceptions about female orgasm, about whether. Uh, understanding that it need most people need clitoral stimulation right so they don't uh, often they haven't explored their own bodies they haven't masturbated to orgasm they don't under you know they don't know what they like yet so then they're they're not very equipped to go into a partnered sexual encounter and and be able to have much impact right so a lot of times both people are expecting the the guy again we're talking about a heterosexual pair here uh, should just figure this out or know what to do that's a lot of pressure on them too
0: and I was just gonna ask you a little about your um obviously you've got your private practice, but you also run your own podcast, um, the Better Sex Podcast. Can you just tell us a little bit about that, Jessa, as well?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I started it in January 2018. Um I was actually a guest on a podcast once and I had so much fun. I thought, oh, I want to do this. <laughs> so, the, <laughs> so I started it. Um and I talk at this point, I talk with experts on most of my episodes who have something to say about sex. Um some very directly, some sort of obliquely. Uh, some of the interviews, though, I'm starting to do, which I love, are doing personal stories. So I'm talking to just regular people anonymously about what their journey has been around sex, you know, especially if they've had some challenges or struggles and what they've done about that and how that's turned out, at least so far, which I find, I just think those are really impactful.
0: And are they people that have come through your practice or have they approached you separately? or how No, do you find separate, those people? separately. It's
1: kind of hard to, well, I do it anonymously, so it's not too big a deal, but You know, people don't want to necessarily cross those lines, but if anybody's listening and (laughs) wants to be a guest, I'm always looking for people to share, you know, their personal stories because I think that's where other people listen and think, oh, it's not just me. We have access to stories and um, perspectives that we would never have had, right? It's, yeah.
0: And um and you've also written a book um which is called Sex Without Stress. Why yeah. you said in that that once sex becomes synonymous with disappointment, avoidance sets in and creates pressure in the bedroom. <laughs> that's yeah. that's. Cool. Um, how did you end up writing a? How do you end up writing a book? And and um, what have you researched in accordance with that?
1: Well, it was, it was based on just my therapy practice. So it wasn't researched in that sense, but the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of couples that I've seen, there's a lot of stuff I say to everybody, you know, over and over and over again. So it starts to be, wait a minute, if I could get this out for people, cause I, you know, I can only work with 20 couples a week in Seattle. I only have so many hours and I'm limited geographically. So the idea of trying to put this, try to get it all out coherently in something that I can reach way more people. So anybody, you know, around the world that reads English anyway could get this book and and it's a do it yourself approach. It's like what I do in therapy with people spelled out so that maybe couples could do it on their own. Which is sort of a big ask because there's kind of a lot to do. So I'm that's why I've got a I'm starting an online course too to sort of work people through the material and coach them and have some office hours because I it's hard to do this without some support, but I still wanted to put it out there for people. But the idea is what I see so much in my practice is what I call the sexual avoidance cycle. So people have sex that feels disappointing to them, whether they have sexual sexual dysfunction or they're struggling with desire discrepancy or they have they have unrealistic expectations about how sex goes, you know, and so they start to feel bad about the sex that they're having. And then, of course, it's totally human nature to avoid the things that make us feel bad, right? If it it makes you feel anxious, you avoid it generally. Um, But that avoidance only makes it worse because, you know, we have this idea that we should be having sex. Something must be wrong that we're not. Um, There's pressure from, you know, I know my partner wants to be having sex. And so that's, you know, even though we're not talking about it, it's still the elephant in the room, and and then when you if you have sex you know the, on those occasions that you do there's all this pressure that it go okay or it sort of proves again that you're broken right so which of course makes it hard to have a good time with that kind of pressure on on your sex so th- that's why it's a cycle that people can get totally trapped in but they don't need to be so that the goal of the book is to is to give a process to break that cycle and totally get out of it. Because I really believe if you rethink sex and your expectations and your understanding of what it is, you actually can't fail at it. There, I mean, I really believe that. So that's that's what I want to get up on a soapbox and just shout to the world. It's like, you actually can't fail at sex. So I hope people embrace that.
0: Yeah, yeah it's really cool. And actually, I think um, what you say about avoiding something that feels pressured and stressful is just such a natural human thing to do that, that if you, if you don't feel comfortable with each other, because there's this kind of thing of, Oh God, we haven't had sex for a while.
1: yeah, natu-
0: It's very easy to just think, Oh, well, we'll, we'll just not do it. You know? Right.
1: Right. But it makes it, it makes it worse. It's not just sex. Anything we avoid makes the anxiety about it worse, not better. So there's something about leaning in and stepping into the anxiety you feel and starting to talk to your partner about this and start to examine the ideas you have and, you know, uh, start to do something different than just avoid it. I mean, I think my main um, struggle is how do I provide some support to people as they try to work through this process? But it can't just be in therapy in my office because I don't have enough hours for that. So that's this puzzle I'm trying to solve. So the idea of doing an online course is my first attempt to try to get people support. And then I'll probably develop, you know, retreats or workshops kind of thing in person. So people, you know, but try to figure out some way to support people in a group, <laughs> you know, while they're doing their own little private thing in their relationship. Um, oh, and the other, yeah, I guess the other thing I'm I'm toying with and may develop by the end of the year, although it might be next year is a set of cards, like a game kind of to help with physical intimacy.
0: Oh, cool. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, and I want it to be – the ones I've seen are very prescriptive. And there's somebody else's idea of what might be exciting. Like, go have sex in the back of a car. Well, what if that's not you, you know? <laughs> so I'm trying to develop – I have this concept for these cards that would be way more versatile. And it would it would be um, – enough guidance to give you some ideas but where you get to overlay your own sense of what's erotic and interesting to you and then do this with your partner so hopefully I'll get that done too
0: and so actually it's kind of guides you down a path but leaves it open to your own interpretation of what exactly is yeah. for you. And,
1: huh right and it really important to me is that it's for any anatomy, any sexual orientation, any gender identity, like, I really wanted to be totally inclusive, which is what I really tried to do with my book, too, because that you don't see that very often. So
0: that's really interesting, actually. And uh, that sounds like a very cool concept, I have to say. (laughs) Well, I hope I can (laughs) hope I can get it done. As usual, I threw the floor open to Jethro at the end of our chat and asked if she had anything else she'd like to add, particularly with regard to women and sex. I love this part of things when I chat to women for the podcast. I said it previously in Manon Bradley's episode, but you never really know what's going to come next.
1: Well, I mean, I guess I wouldn't mind the chance to talk a, a, about a, a common phenomenon I see that I feel like it impacts most people that hear about it. <laughs> so, cool.
0: Okay. Yeah, go for it.
1: Definitely. It's sort of a, you know, sort of a diversion. but. It, um, a lot of people struggle, like I said, with desire discrepancy, right? where I mean, that's normal. You get a couple and one person wants more sex than the other. Um, and it can switch around. It's not like anybody's level of desire is correct, but people can struggle in that tension. And one of the concepts that I think is so important to understand is that a lot of people, plenty of women, experience sexual desire in a reactive way. So there's proactive desire, which is what we think of as libido and sex drive. Like, I think about sex, I get spontaneously horny, I'd like to make this happen. But plenty of people have reactive desire, so they may almost never feel that way, or they don't think about sex. Right? I've got clients who say to me, I could probably go the whole rest of my life without sex, and I'd be just fine. But if they got going, if things were good with their partner and they got the time and space they needed and the stimulation they needed, you know, they start out kissing or talking or whatever it is and and they get going and their body starts to respond, right? Then they start to get aroused and then they want sex. So it has to be elicited, right? And that that kind of desire is perfectly normal. Nothing's broken with that. But it requires the opportunity to arise, right? Like you have to be willing to start. <laughs> you have to start at zero without any promise that you're going to end up wanting sex, right? There's no guarantee, but some percentage of the time, the engine turns over and you end up interested in sex where you never would have been 10 minutes before, you know? And so many of us cut off that from ever happening. Cause we won't start. It's too scary to think, Oh, I can't start something. I won't finish. Or what if I have my teas or, you know, anyway, I, th- I just think that's a really crucial concept. Um, and it's not just women who can feel that way. It can be men too. So whoever's listening, this could apply to you or it could apply to your partner, or if it applies to both of you, then you really have to do it on purpose, <laughs> right? Because no, nobody's feeling it spontaneously. So it's like, wait, let's set aside some time to just mess around a little bit and see where it goes.
0: And that's about making so, the time and space with each other to allow that to happen, I guess. Right, right. Exactly. You're scheduling an opportunity,
1: not an outcome. No, sure, so,
0: sure. And yeah. is there... um any evidence about libido in men versus women or, you know, in kind of heterosexual and homosexual couples or or anything else? Like, is it, is it recognized that men do have higher libidos than women or is that just a complete fallacy?
1: I, I would say anecdotally, there's some evidence to that, but with, you know, like the couples that I see who are struggling with sex, you know, roughly half of them, a woman wants more sex than the guy if they're in a heterosexual relationship. So it's not unheard of. And even, so even if it is, generally true. It sort of has nothing to do with any particular couple. <laughs> so what's important to know is it's normal to have a discrepancy. Uh, it's normal for either person to be the, you know, want more sex or less sex. And the the trick is to collaborate and how you're going to navigate that together. So there's a lot in the book about that too. And I've written on my blog if people want more information.
0: What would you say is the kind of one, I think I can kind of guess your answer, but, um, what would you say is the sort of one big thing that, um, that people need to Start as a starting point for improving their sex life.
1: Talk about it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I was going to say, is it communication?
1: (laughs) It is. It's being, you know, stop avoiding, be willing to talk about how it's going for you and how you feel about it. And, you know, come from a positive place. I want our relationship to be as good as it can possibly be. And take yourself on. Don't blame your partner. What's your role in avoiding or, you know, in the sexual struggles that you're having? Um, Because once you can cross that hurdle and start to talk about it, without blame you know and with uh, in sort of a constructive way there really is a way to fix it
0: and if people are really interested in finding out more about you and your work and your book and your podcast where can they go to find all of that all of that is
1: available through jessazimmerman.com
0: that's nice so and simple can-
1: Very simple. So you can link to buy the book. You can link to the podcast site, uh, the blog, everything. You know, we've got a free online sex quiz. There's all kinds of stuff and all of it can be gotten to through there.
0: Sure. I've listened to some of your podcasts and they're, you know, just in case people think that they are going to be a bit one track. They are very varied and very interesting, actually. And the guests you have on are incredibly widespread.
1: I don't think any one person would necessarily want to listen to every episode because they're so different.
0: But some of them will apply to everybody out there, I think. So check out Jessa's podcast and her blog at jessazimmerman.com and do drop us an email at smashingtheceiling at gmail.com if you've got anything to say on this or any other topics. Thanks so much to Jessa for joining me and thanks for listening. I can't tell you how much it means to me. Next week's guest is a tech genius from Silicon Valley who is shaking up the world of technology entrepreneurship. So join us next Sunday. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave us a nice review on your favorite podcast site as it helps others to find us. More importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word, as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing The Ceiling, and we'll hopefully see you next time.